Hi there, and welcome to the Credo Fireside Chat, connecting you with interesting people that go beyond regular investment waffle. Today's talk is right on the money, especially if you're a cricket fan. We speak with Michael Holding, famed Jamaican cricket bowler. Now retired, he was named Whispering Death during his heyday. He was a feared pace bowler in the 1970s and 80s before becoming a respected sports commentator. He's written a book about international cricket and tackles the important subject of institutional racism in sport. Today's chat will be hosted by Dion Hoss, CIO of Credo Wealth. Please join me in welcoming Dion and Michael. This is your podcast. Please enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another fireside chat hosted by Credo Wealth. For those of you who don't know us, just briefly background about the firm. Credo was started in London in 1998. Uh, and if you fast forward 23 years later to where we are today, we currently administer approximately four and a half billion pounds on our platform, and we service 7,000 clients across the UK, South Africa, and elsewhere. My name is Dion Goos. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of the firm, and I'm based at the head office in London. It gives me great pleasure to welcome our special guest today. And he probably doesn't need much introduction, but I'll do so anyway. Michael Holding, is a Jamaican former cricketer and commentator. Widely regarded as one of the greatest bowlers in history, he was nicknamed Whispering Death due to his silent, light-footed run-up to the crease. He was part of the fearsome West Indian pace battery that devastated batting lineups throughout the world in the 70s and 80s. In July this year, Bowling's third book, Why We Kneel, How We Rise, was published. The book describes how institutionalized racism developed over time and how it affects people of color today. And it includes contributions from sports stars such as Usain Bolt, Thierry Henry, Michael Johnson, and Naomi Osaka. I'm very thankful and proud that we can call Michael a friend of our firm and he has been our guest on previous occasions. And when I originally reached out to him about this event, I didn't even know that he was about to retire. So I guess that gives us one more thing to talk about today. So, Michael, uh, thanks a lot uh, for joining us and welcome. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Dion. I'm glad to be with you again. Uh, it's good to see you. Are, are you uh, chatting to us uh, from the Caribbean? Yes, I'm in the Caribbean, not in the normal English-speaking cricketing Caribbean. I'm from Grand Cayman. They speak English here, but they're not a part of the cricketing Caribbean. Correct. Anyway, you've, you've had a, a long and illustrious career, Mikey. First as a player, of course, a top-class player. Uh, then as a commentator for a long time. The author now of, of a few books. Uh, and if I may say so, more likely also as an activist. Uh, but if you don't mind, uh, I actually want to start towards the end and then you can, we can move backwards. Uh, your recent yeah. announcement that you were leaving the world of commentary, you know, why retire, you know, somebody so youthful? Well, Dion, I, I think if, if you have been following, you would have noticed that I have made no official statement or announcement about my retirement because I don't really want to make one. All I will say is that I have been traveling, playing cricket, commentating on cricket since 1975 there. And as you know, that's a long, long time. And there are not a lot of test matches that are played in Jamaica. And even when they are, that's just one test match per season. That's a lot of hours to be away from home, a lot of years to be away from home. I haven't even had Christmas 
on with my family for many many years because as you know i go to south africa at that time of the year so finally i'll be able to spend a bit more time at home a bit, bit more time with the family uh, that's fully understandable when you say home um home is in in the caymans you, you used to sort of split your time between various geographies when you were still actively involved in commentating i'm not talking about the yeah. touring now i'm talking about where you sort of lived your life yes yes definitely i spend i spent four months of the year in the UK and I was based in Newmarket. I think you know why, because of the horses. So between May and September, I have based in Newmarket since 1998. I've spent every summer in the UK based in Newmarket. And of course, at, when I first started, I was in Jamaica. I was living in Jamaica in 1998. Then I moved to, the, to Florida. I started living in Florida about 2011, 2012. And now I am based in Cayman. So I've been in Cayman now from October 2018, I think. So this is now where I'm based because my wife has a has a business here. So this is where we are based. Understand. Your, your retirement has been followed by many platitudes, you know, the world over. Um, and I'm going to quote but one. And that was the tribute to you that was written uh, by David Gower uh, in The Times. Um, and he wrote lots of nice things, but especially... He spoke about your voice, Mikey, or as he called it, that voice. Um, and the way he described it, he said, and by the way, he was quoting his daughter here, if you read the paragraph, he says, it's a voice that has women trembling at a thousand yards, that has men bowing in admiration and probably jealousy. How do you feel about all the reaction to your retirement? Well, Diana, I'm very happy to read all these things and to hear some of the comments that people have made. You know, it's pleasing to me. I'm proud of the fact that people have enjoyed my commentary over the years and have enjoyed listening to me over the years. You know, they say it is always best to leave when people are saying, why are you leaving? Than to hang around and people say, why are you there so long? So I'm very happy that some of the people are regretting that I'm leaving. But the time is right. It's been a very long time. And yes, some people talk about my voice, but to be honest, I don't even like hearing myself speak. I did the book in audio and I have never listened to it. I have to say, I did listen to some clips and it's, it's, it's wonderfully soothing to listen to you uh, reading about it. I, I also heard an interview where you spoke about the fact that, uh, are you invo involved in a voiceover for, for some cricket app at the moment? No, that was a long time ago. I attempted that, but it didn't work out as well okay. as we were hoping. It wasn't really a cricketing app. It was a voice-over voice messaging for telephone okay. or mobile phones. But it didn't really catch on the way we, where we were expecting. So that died quite a bit a long time ago. So, so, Mikey, you've been in the public eye for a long time, obviously. But if I may say so, I would suggest that your profile has been raised quite a bit in the last few months in the wake of your most recent book. Um, and just in the last few months, of course, you've, for example, you've had lunch with the FT, um, you've uh, had your chance on Desert Island Discs, um, you've been invited to the Creed of Fireside Chat, that must be a highlight, uh, and you've been uh, in interviews in India, Australia and elsewhere, I found many of them uh, on the internet in my preparation for this. So my question for you is, is this something that you enjoy or is there a danger that it turns into a bit of a chore? I don't think it will turn into a chore because I am hoping beyond that some good will come of it. I can't say it's something that I enjoy. Um, as a matter of fact, 
I am sorry that I have to be doing things that like this, where I have to be talking about diversity and writing a book about diversity and writing a book about equality. One would hope that in the future, that won't be necessary. We have had so much talk about this subject and I've seen action and I'm hoping that the action will continue so that people of the future, I won't be around to see it obviously, but people of the future won't have to be delving into this situation. Understood. I mentioned Desert Island Discs, um, and, and I guess you recorded it only maybe a couple of months ago, if, if I'm correct. Um, in your Desert Island Discs, and of course, I, there were only, I think, eight songs and, and one book that you could choose. You actually mentioned South Africans three times, um, and I don't know if you remember all three of the South Africans that featured in your in your nine selections. You will. I mentioned South Africans throughout the program because the book is about Nelson Mandela. So that's one. Sure. This, one of the songs is Miriam Makiba, of course, Pata yes. Pata. And yeah. I think I mentioned Tony Gregg in the conversation as well because I think it was asked about the Grubble series and that sort of a thing. So those are, the, I think, the three South Africans that were mentioned during Desert Island. This. No, you're spot on. So, so firstly, you, you said in Desert Island Discs that Maria Makeba was the first South African you came across. Does that mean you met her or did it just mean that you came across her music? No, I never met her. She actually came to Jamaica in the 60s and she performed at the Carib Theatre, which was, you know, the local spot for, for shows and movies and that sort of a thing. And yeah. that's the first time I came across her, but I obviously didn't meet her. 1967, 68, somewhere around there. I would have been... 13, 14 years old at the time. It's it's a great song, I have to say. Do you know what it means, by the way? No, I don't. Okay. I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you afterwards when we stop recording because I'm scared there's some kids that may be watching this. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, So the second one, it, as you rightly mentioned, was, was Tony Gregg. Um, and I'm well aware of, you know, your first interaction with him uh, and the Grovel series, which I believe was the summer of 76. But perhaps yes. just sort of summarize that for the benefit of those that, that don't know that piece of history. And then also, if you don't mind, uh, extend it to your subsequent relationship with, uh, with Tony. Yeah, well, 1976, when the West Indies went up to England, Tony Gregg was the captain of the England team. And he gave an interview to the BBC before the series started about, you know, what he was, he was expecting of the West Indies the England Test Series. And he made a comment that really... Hackless. We we he said something about oh the West Indies team they are pretty good when they are on top but when you have them down they gravel and I along with Closey and a few others intend to make them gravel. He used an unfortunate word there, Dion. That word gravel and I think the history of Tony Gregg being a South African and it was during the apartheid era just made us West Indians think that hey this man is using some racist terms and he. He's basically a racist person. So we intended to stuff the words down his throat. We won the series, of course, but a lot of things happened in that series. And afterwards, that made me think back and think to myself, no, no, this man just was unfortunate to use the wrong word. One first that I didn't think about immediately, Dion, was the Oval Test match. We declared our second innings and put England back into bat. And the West Indians started to shout from the stands, gravel, Gregory, gravel, gravel, Gregory, Gregory, gravel. And he actually went down on his knees and hands and took the last few steps into the pavilion on his knees and his hands. 
showing the West Indians, yes, you have defeated me. I will do what you're saying. I am now the one grappling. At the time, I thought nothing, nothing of it. But at the time, you're 22 years old. You're still upset about this man using that term. But much later on in life, I came to realize that if Tony Gregg was really a racist and he was making a racist remark intentionally, he would not have gone down on his knees and hands and took and take those last few steps into the pavilion. There's no way a racist is going to succumb to that. And again, when I met him and worked with him over many, many years in Australia, in Dubai, in the UAE, in Sharjah, I got to realize Tony Gregg was a normal human being, just like me. And we became very good friends, not just Tony Gregg and I, but Tony Gregg's family, his second wife, Vivian, and, and, and myself, my family, we all became very good friends because I then recognized that who the man really was. And that, Dion, is about education. I didn't know. If you don't know, you don't know. But I got educated by meeting him. And we then got to realize who this man really was. So you've referred to your performance in that test. Uh, the West Indian team won, I think, by 231 runs or something. It was an absolute walloping. Um, but Tony Gregg did have his moment in that test. I don't even remember the beautiful ball that he bowled with Richards with. Yeah, but when you get someone out to 291, you can't really say <laughs> boast about that. Exactly. Yeah. I should have mentioned that. It was after he had 291. Uh, and you yes. yourself, Michael, you scored a few runs in that test. Do you remember? To be honest, no. That test is, has been talked about, about me getting the 14 wickets in, in the test exactly. match. So, and, you know, the runs, I don't remember anything about the runs. So you, you got 14 wickets, which I think is still a West Indian record for a test. That's right, is it? Yes, I think it is. Yes. Eight in the first and six in the second. And in the first innings, you made 32 runs, Mikey, with five, four, and six. Yes, you, you scored more runs than, than all but three Englishmen in that test. I wasn't aware of that. Anyway, um, so that's a great story about Tony Gregg. And then the last and, and most important, obviously, South African, um, Nelson Mandela. You started traveling to South Africa regularly uh, in the 90s as a commentator. Mandela was, uh, you know, just coming out of prison, became the president of the country. I, I presume you met him a number of times? No, my first time to South Africa wasn't actually in the 90s. My first time to South Africa was 2000 when England toured South Africa and I went there with Sky. And then I have been going back there regularly since about 2014, 2013, 2014. I went there about seven years on the trot working for, for Supersport. But I never got to meet the, the great man. You know, when I went there for Sky in 2000, the opportunity certainly wouldn't have presented itself. You know, I was just there working for Sky. And then afterwards, when I went back for Supersport, it was getting a bit too late to be actually asking the one, can I meet? Nelson Mandela, because he wasn't in the prime of his youth at that stage. Just going back to early in your career, and once again, in terms of your relationship with, with South Africa, I read somewhere that uh, when the first Kerry Packer series happened in the, whatever it was, the late 70s, um, there was an issue, 77, there, there was an issue with some of the South African players and your own involvement. Can you remind us of, of how that played out? Yeah, well, Tony Gregg again, his name comes up again, and Austin Robertson were the two gentlemen who came to Jamaica to talk to me about working for Kerry Packer and playing for Kerry Packer. And of course, it was during the, the Pakistan series. I'll give you a little bit of background to that. I wasn't playing for the West Indies then. I had gone to university because I had put cricket on, on the back burner. 
and I was called by Clive Lloyd and said, listen, this thing is happening. Don't say anything to anyone, but this thing is happening. This is private cricket, private enterprise cricket. Tony Gregg and, and Austin Roberts are going to come and talk to you in Jamaica about this thing. So they came and they mentioned to me what was happening. And because Clive Lloyd had told me that he had signed and the Roberts had signed, because at, at initially they were just wanted four West Indians, Clive Lloyd and the Roberts with Richards and myself. And when I asked him about Bibi he said, Bibi said he needed some time to think about it. So when they came to Jamaica, I said, just show me where to sign. Because if Clive Lloyd has signed, I will sign. Anything Clive Lloyd says is fine for him, will be fine for me. And then they, they showed me where to sign, but they then gave me a list of cricketers that had already signed. And on that list were South, some South Africans that I had heard nothing about. They hadn't been playing county cricket, for instance, so I wouldn't have heard anything about them. And I said to them, listen, you have some South Africans on this list. I'm going to sign. But I would suggest that you speak to my Prime Minister, Mr. Michael Manley, who was the Prime Minister of Jamaica at that time in the 70s, right up, right up until 1980, about my participation. Because as you know, Michael Manley was one of the first signatories on the Glen Eagles Agreement to, to avoid sporting contact with South Africa. So if he is objecting to me playing with these South Africans, I can't come. And that is how it all came about. And I think Kerry Packer then called Michael Manley and said to him, listen, I have, I, it wasn't just those South Africans that were involved. There are about seven South Africans involved because those guys that had played county cricket were also involved. And I think the story goes, I wasn't actually on the call, so I'm just repeating what I was told, that Michael Manley said to Kerry Packer, it's fine for my Jamaican to come and play in your series, but he will only come if you sign the cricketers, the South African cricketers that have played county cricket because West Indians are already playing with them in the county cricket. But those that are not playing county cricket, sorry, I cannot allow my Jamaican to come and play with them. And that's how they, they, they were paid and not, and not played. A few years later, Mikey, we had the first of two West Indian rebel tours. Um, and of course, famously, you did not participate, even though a number of top players did come out to South Africa. My, my question for you is this. You, you were very much in the prime of your international career then, but you were also still a relatively young man. You were still in your 20s. And my question is, how, how were you so um, insightful and, 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 and so sure at the time that, that you could simply not do this? You refer in your book, for example, to the blood money that your teammates took. Well, there's no way I could go to South Africa during apartheid. Yeah. You know, the apartheid regime was unjust. It's, it was wicked. It, I just could not see myself going to South Africa during once that regime was in place. And of course, my mother was a big so-called activist. Not that she was on the streets or anything like that, but she kept in touch with South Africa. She knew what was happening in South Africa. And although I wasn't fully aware of it because she kept it to herself, in my family, we were very conscious of just injustices to black people and people of color all over the world. So there is no way I could then say to myself, I'm going to go and play in South Africa on this, under this apartheid regime. So under no circumstances would I have gone. I was going to ask you about your mother because you dedicate the book to your mother. Um, and as you yeah. say in your dedication, uh, she lived a life quietly, hoping for equality. C can you tell us a little bit more about her, about your relationship with her? And also, if you don't mind, about the basic racism that she experienced in her own life in Jamaica? 
you will this is not again something that she shared with me and i am the youngest of the family i have two sisters one is 80 and one is 78 i am i'm just 67 years old so i'm coming a decade and a bit after them and they would have known about this they would have experienced it my mother was a brown-skinned Jamaican. A brown-skinned Jamaican mean like a cape colored. And she married a black man. When she was getting married to this black man, her family did not want her to get married to this black man. And you can imagine how dark he would have been if my mother is like a cape, cape colored, her skin complexion, and I am as dark as I am. So you would understand how dark he would have been. And she was other man. This is the man she loves. This is the man she wants to spend the rest of her life with. So she got married to the man, but then her family pretty much ostracized her. She wasn't then connected to the family. They pretty much divorced her. Not her siblings. Her siblings are always around. Our two brothers, our two sisters, we're always around. Christmas time, we had big family gathering, that sort of thing. But I didn't know like her uncles and her aunts and that sort of thing. But again, growing up, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't thinking where's where's mama's uncle or where's mama's aunt. Or, I wasn't thinking things like that. Just growing up in a family and enjoying the environment. Much later on in life, I got to then recognize certain things that were happening. For instance, I went to New York once with her. We were staying with a family, of, a, a relative in New York, upstairs building. We were in the same bedroom together. Early one morning, she got up, she went to the window. She saw a black and a white kid playing together in the, in the next, next yard beside us. And she woke me up. Mikey, Mikey, come and look at this. Just to show you that it was constantly on her mind. I was perhaps 13, 14 years old at the time. And she pointed to the two kids playing in the yard and said to me, look at this, Mikey, we have a chance. Again, it had no impact on me. You know, I'm 13, 14 years old. What is my mother talking about? Much later on in life, it came back to me. Her mind is still on this problem. Obviously, if your family ostracizes you, that lives with you. And that is why I did dedicated the book to her. Because I can imagine what went through her. If my family ostracized me, I, I would feel devastated. But she never showed it. I never at any point realized what she was going through mentally because she was always a happy woman she was always dedicated to her family and always doing whatever she could the other thing that i found interesting uh, is that she was actually very sort of closely following events in south africa at the time in the 60s because she had a, she had a dog named after steve beaker yes and again i had absolutely no idea why beaker i didn't know who stephen beaker was at, at, at that time but she had this dog. We always had dogs in the family. We grew up with dogs. And a lot of them would get killed because we never had a front gate. And as time went on and the area got more and more developed, we had more cars on the road, the dogs would stray out onto the road and they would get hit. And when Biko got killed, it's the first time I saw my mother that distraught. She wept. And again, as a youngster, I'm thinking to myself, it's just a dog. It's not the first dog that we have lost this way. Why is she so distraught? Many, many, many years later, I then discover why. Because that was her connection to what was happening in South Africa. Beacos was representative of Stephen Beacos. 
and to lose even Biko or to lose Biko the way that she lost him, it destroyed her. I want to start talking about the book specifically, Michael. And just before I do that, one more question, which leads to the book, is uh, in the summer when there was still cricket in full swing, you did the one lunchtime podcast with Eggers. Um, and you mentioned something there, which I never heard before. And in fact, I didn't pick it up in the book unless I missed it. Um, where you mentioned the fact that in terms of background of the book, your interest in the history of racism was sparked by a conversation with Alvin Niker, who's uh, involved at Supersport in, in South Africa. And he, he told you about Robert Mugabe and the Lancaster House Agreement. Um, and something happened in that conversation. Where he said something in that conversation which, which sparked your interest. Can, can, you, can you tell us more about that? No, I wouldn't say my interest started there. My research into the history of racism and, and injustices got, could say it's got sparked there because I was always interested and in knowing about racism and things like that. But it wasn't Alvin Nyker himself. I went with Alvin Nyker to a friend of his. I went to, we went to his house in Bloemfontein. And I passed a disparaging mark, remark about Robert Mugabe. And he said to me, Mikey, I'm not going to argue with you about this thing. We don't want to get involved in that. We're just going to have a nice night tonight, whatever. But I would suggest to you that you just go and Google Lancaster House Agreement and read up about, about that Lancaster House Agreement. And I said, okay, no problem. We had a good night, whatever. Went back uh, perhaps the next day or perhaps a couple of days later on, I decided, okay, let me Google this Lancaster House Agreement. And when I read through it, when I found all I could find and different versions and different stories around it, I thought to myself, we were never told this. The Western world didn't tell us exactly what happened with Mugabe and the, the seeking of independence and the, what the plan was to get back the farmland. That was never ever told. All they told you about is the bad things about Mugabe. And so I said to myself, if this has been hidden from us, if we are never told this, what else has been hidden? And that is when I started to do more and more research into the background of all the injustices and all the history that has gone on with, with racism. And that is when I started to learn a lot more there. And when the time came for me to talk on Sky, when I was given the opportunity to talk on Sky, I had a lot in my head already. I already knew a lot of stories. So it wasn't difficult. You know, afterwards, Michael Atherton said to me, do you know you have to spoke for about four minutes nonstop? I didn't know. I was not aware of how long I had spoken. It just kept flowing out. And I could have gone on for a lot longer if I hadn't got so emotional and, and then had to stop. And thankfully, Ian Ward recognized what was happening and brought in Nasa Hussein for him to start talking. But, you know, that is where I started to do all my research. As ever, Mikey, Michael Atherton is the king of understatement. You didn't speak for four minutes. You spoke, spoke for more than four and a half minutes, to be exact. And in okay. fact, of course, that's, that, that's, that's where your book starts. You know, the, the, the opening line I found beautiful, where you say, thank goodness it rained. Um, so, yes. so, so maybe you can just elaborate in terms of, you know, the significance of the lovely English summer weather in, you know, what happened that day, but also everything subsequently. Well, it all goes back to the murder of George Floyd in United in United States. And of course, we had demonstrations and protests all over the world. And Sky had just employed Ebony Rainford Brent onto the cricketing staff. And Brian Henderson 
had a Zoom meeting of the staff because, as, as you know, it was during COVID, no one was getting together. So there was a Zoom meeting of the cricketing department. And he asked Ebony to speak about her experiences and to talk about the fact that she had gone to these demonstrations, she had gone to these protests. And Ebony started to talk about her life growing up in England. First black woman to play cricket for England. And she spoke about that and her experiences and she broke down. And Brian Henderson got a little bit touched by her emotions and decided that this wasn't good enough. He was going to now dedicate some time to Ebony to talk about her life, to record it and to play it back out on Sky so that people could know exactly what people go through or what people of color go through. Then he called me. I was still here in the Cayman because we weren't even absolutely sure we, we would get cricket. And as you recognize, cricket started in July 2020, which normally starts in May, latest early, early June. So he called me and he said to me, this is my plan. I'm going to record Ebony. I want her to talk about her experiences, her life. I'm wondering if you would be willing to do the same. I said, absolutely, Hendo. I would gladly get involved. Then he got back to me later on and said, cricket is definitely on. But you don't have to come because if you remember last year, there was no vaccine. I was 66 years old last year. That means I was in the vulnerable group. And he said, you do not have to come because we don't want to risk you coming to, to, to the UK. And I said, Hendo, I am coming. If there is cricket, I am coming. Plus, you want me to do this thing with Ebony, I am coming. So we went up, we did the recording, and of course, it was edited to a short period of time because you know it had to be played out at a particular time during the day it was supposed to be lunch time but with the rain around weren't absolutely sure we we're going to start on time hendo decided to bring it forward and play it out in the build-up to the start of play but even when the start of play came about it was still raining so that gave ian ward the opportunity to then say to me mikey what was it like looking down the lens of a camera and, and seeing what you said and talking about the injustices and that sort of thing and of course, that's when it all started. It just kept, it just came out and kept on flowing. And I just kept on talking and going back into history and talking about different experiences and that sort of a thing. At that point, I thought that was it. You know, I've said what I have to say. I got a lot of feedback from people saying that, yes, they understood what I was saying. And they, some people even said they are glad that I said it. And one message I got in particular, Dian, that really pleased me. Because just to show you, do not judge a book by its cover. I've heard so many stories and so many people telling the different things about people without even knowing them. I got a message from an African gentleman that I met in South Africa. I would not say he's a friend because that would be pushing my, my, my significance to him. But he's a gentleman I met. He loves his cricket. And he sent a message to me. He said, Mikey, I heard you. I'm glad you said what you said. It's true. It had to be said. And this is an African gentleman that people will tell you, oh, the Africans, they are so racist and they are this and they are that. Do not judge a book by its color. Give everybody an opportunity to show you what they are. And that is a problem with people of color. Black people and people of color are judged by their cover. You see a black man, you don't care about him anymore. He's black. That means you'll form an impression of him immediately. And I would like people to just take that as, a, as an example of the way life should be. Oh, thank you. That's very moving again. Uh, of course, you told a couple of anecdotes, maybe more than a couple in those four and a half minutes. 
Um, and you told us about the, the inventor of the light bulb. Um, and I'll, I'd like to ask you maybe just to repeat that briefly, but in, specifically in the book, you made the points, and I'm now quoting from the book. Um, you said, had I known about one, and I hope I, I don't know how to pronounce this, Mikey, Onesimus, how would you pronounce that name? Yeah, that's correct, Onesimus. Had I known about Onesimus when I had my British say on Sky Sports, I would have told his story. Instead, I spoke about another man, Lewis Howard Latimer. Latimer. And you put a full, full stop between Lewis and Howard and Latimer. Maybe you can just elaborate on, on that little uh, sort of line in the book, please. Because I want to emphasize his name, Dian. That man invented the carbon filament without which you would not have a light bulb today. The light bulb would not be shining for the days and weeks and months and sometimes years that each light bulb shines. Because the filament that Edison used was a paper filament and it burnt out in absolutely no time. So without Lewis Howard Latimer's carbon filament, we wouldn't have what we have now. Yet, nothing is taught about Lewis Howard Latimer because he is a black man. The history of black accomplishments, black innovation, black achievements has been airbrushed. We don't learn about those things. As a black man growing up in Jamaica, we weren't taught anything good about black people or people of color. So that is why I highlighted him. And Onesimus, that you, you just mentioned, he is the first man to introduce inoculations to the Western world. He was a slave, an African slave living in Boston. Boston was being ravaged by smallpox. And of course, nobody knew how to protect their people from the smallpox. Onesimus went to his master, who was a pastor, by the way, Dian, showing the connection of religion and slavery. His owner was a pastor. He went to him and he told him about what he had seen and learned and known in Africa. That how to inoculate people against a disease. You take a healthy person, you cut their skin, you take a sick person, you take some of the infected blood or the pus from that sick person, introduce it to the healthy person, small dose obviously, so that it goes into that healthy person's body. That body then sees this foreign object learns how to fight against it and it, of course that means the person is then immune to that foreign object or that virus or whatever it is that may enter their body later on he was the first man to introduce it to the western world nobody knew anything about inoculations no one knew anything about immunization but no one has taught anyone about it many years many many years later you hear about an english doctor I think his name was Jessup. I'm not absolutely sure. I can't remember. I think his name might have been Jessup, who then experimented with cowpox and smallpox. And of course, he invented the vaccine against smallpox. Not trying to take anything away from him, but all of a sudden, he's the father of immunization and inoculation. Onesimus came a long time before him, but he was a slave, a black man, so airbrushed again out of history. Just to go back to the previous response, you mentioned um, the Afrikaans guy sent you a message, but of course, probably the most important message you got in response was from Thierry Henry. Um, and it's probably fair to say that the book would not have happened had it not uh, been for that message. Is that right? Well, Thierry Henry was the first person of note. You know, when I say note, I mean first big star that got in touch with me. 
because it wasn't even after that first day of the test match. It was the second day at the end of the day's play. I appeared on Sky News with Mark Austin. And Mark asked me, because people had noticed that I'd gotten a little bit emotional by when I stopped speaking. And Mark asked me why I had I'd gotten emotional. And I told him because at that point I started to remember my parents and what my mother might must have gone through. And again, I got emotional and I actually shed tears. And when Thierry Henry saw me crying on Sky News, he called Sky and said that he wanted my number because he wanted to speak to me. Of course, they gave him the number. And then I would, when I got back to the commentary box, again, Brian Henderson said to me, Thierry Henry called. He asked for your number. I hope you don't mind. We gave it to him. I said, absolutely no problem. And a few minutes later on, he then called and I answered and we spoke. But even at that point, Dion, there was no intention of writing a book. The intention was for us to get together and delve into the situation even more. Because as a black footballer in France, growing up in France and representing France, he was telling me about his experiences as well. So we were supposed to meet again. But again, COVID, we couldn't get together. So that is where the conversation pretty much ended until there was a possibility of us getting back together. But then another message came in that Naomi Osaka wanted to speak to me. Again, the message was, she says she can identify with this man. She wants to have a word with him. Because Naomi Osaka was perhaps similar to me in that my mother being brown-skinned and her father black, her mother being Japanese and her father Haitian black. So she might have identified with me talking about that. So wanted to have a word with me, with me as well. But even at that point, again, there was no intention of doing the book. But Ed Hawkins, who is my ghostwriter, had been on to me from before. Mike, you can't stop there. You have to do, you have to do more. You have to do a book. Ian Ward had said, what next? You can't stop there. So with all that pressure coming, I shouldn't even call it pressure. With all that interest coming from different people in different directions and from different people all over the world, as I mentioned to you, my South African, again, I almost said friend, he might object to me saying friend, I hope not. But... South African gentleman who got in touch. I got messages from Australia, from India, from the US. I said, you know what? Let, let us do this book. And so I got back in touch with Thierry and I said, Thierry, this is the plan. Would you be willing to get involved in the book? And he said, absolutely. Naomi Osaka, similar situation, absolutely. Then I started to get in touch, or Ed and myself tried to get in touch with different people. As you would imagine, you see, involved was not we had difficult task to get him involved. He got involved, and as you mentioned earlier on, lots of big names got involved. And I'm happy that I was able to get people from diverse people from different parts of the world. Because Mentini is from South Africa, Michael Johnson and Ita Mohammed is from, from America. One a woman, one a man, one a Muslim, one a Christian. We have um Adam Goods from Australia, with, with so many different people from different parts of the world. I was so happy that they were happy to be involved in the book. Which of those names would you say, or which of those interviews, interactions, was the most memorable for you, Mikey? <sighs> to be honest, it, I, I wouldn't want to say any one was more memor memorable than the other because they all had so much of an impact on what they had to say and impact on me by their stories. And they all fit it into the book so beautifully. And you know, when you, when you look at some of the names, people will say, oh, this is a real star, this is a big star. This one, I don't know that much. But 
a lot of things that they might have said were very, very important. And one name that people don't even think about, Dion, is Jeff Harriet. Because he's not a big star. He's not an athlete. He's not a worldwide name, known name. But he is a teacher. He is a headmaster. He is an educator. And his experiences was very, very important to be get, getting involved in this book as well. And I was so happy that he got in touch with me early. He emailed me through the ECB. He didn't know how to get in touch with me. He emailed me through the ECB asking them to forward the email to me. So when I decided to do the book, I said I had to get in. And thankfully, he was happy to be involved as well. When, and when you think about Ibtihaj Mohammed, this is a black woman in America who is a Muslim, who walks around in America in a hijab, who performed and competed at the Olympics in a hijab. You can you imagine her pressures and what she has gone, gone through in her country. So all of them had big parts to play in this book. If I can ask you about one interview, and that's the one about uh, the, the one with Makai Antini, obviously, as speaking for myself, somebody who follows South African cricket closely, Makaya, as well as yourself, come out quite strongly uh, against the quota system. And in fact, in that context, he also quote uh, the current rugby captain, Sia Kulisi. Uh, can you maybe just elaborate on that, please? Well, I was never ever a supporter of the quota system. And I still, at this time, Dion, don't believe in giving people jobs or positions because of the color of their skin or because of their ethnicity or because of their sex or whatever. I believe that everybody should be given the same opportunities to develop. And then you pick the best when they get those opportunities to develop. Not everyone will take advantage of the opportunities, but once you provide the opportunities, you can ask no more. And then you pick from that fairly afterwards, you can ask no more. I had this very same conversation with Ali Baka the first time I went to South second time I went to South Africa. Yeah, it was the 2003 World Cup. And I interviewed him and spoke about him in that interview. And his response to me was, yes, but the playing field has got to be tried to be leveled a little bit earlier. We have got to try and make some moves that happen quicker than if you were to take the long process. And I say, okay, I can understand that. But you have got to get to the point where you say, we can no longer legislate this thing. This thing has now got to be legislated at lower levels. And when I say legislated at lower levels, I mean legislated to make sure that everyone gets the same opportunity. And then you can see the cream rising to the top. Makaya and Tina said the same thing. And this story shows you why it should not continue forever, Dianne. Because Makaya and Tini, we all know how great a fast bowler he was. We all know. Wickets, wickets. Sorry? 399 test wickets. That's that's no fluke. But yet Makaya and Tini still felt and at times was referred to as a quota player. Because that was a system in place. And people who want to drag down anything that is put in place to, to lift people that have been suppressed. Because not everyone, Dion, is going to want to see people that have been suppressed over the years lifted and become equal. Not everyone is going to want to see that. And those who don't will use whatever excuse they can find to drag down the system. And they will use Makaya and Tini. Quota player, come on. 
but the system is in place. So the, the opportunity for them to refer to that is there. And Hashim Amla, same thing. Oh, Hashim Amla, he's only there because of the color of his skin. Hashim Amla, look at his record. Obviously, those arguments stop after a while. But initially, they use it, and you don't want young people to be growing up trying to perform with that hanging over their heads. I'd like to ask you about uh, the Black Lives Matter um, sort of angle to your book, Taking the Knee. Um, and I know you've got strong views about this, but before we get mm -hmm. into that, obviously, if, if you ignore Martin Luther King in 1965, who I think was the first person to, to take yes, the knee, definitely. in modern times, it, it was popularized by Colin Kaepernick uh, in, uh, in, in the US in the NFL about five years ago. So my question is, did you reach out to Colin um, or, or what happened there? But you did that not, was that never no. practical? No, I, I'm not so sure if it's, but you could say it wasn't practical, but I'm not too sure we knew how to get in touch with Colin Kaepernick. And I have no idea if he would be willing to be, if he would have been willing to get involved. But as you can notice, his picture is on the cover of the book. Right before you open the book, you see Colin Kaepernick. Because I think Colin Kaepernick is the one that has really made taking a knee as popular and put it out in the forefront. Yes, Martin Luther King did it way back in, in 1965 when he went on his marches. And not just him, but a lot of um, the, the gentleman who died recently, Lewis, the senator who died recently in the US, all of them did it. But Colin Kaepernick is who brought it to the forefront again recently. And when you talk about taking the knee, Dion, I am very passionate about that because that is the worldwide recognized gesture for supporting Black Lives Matter. And BLM, as people who want to drag it down again, always refer to the political aspect of it. I don't care about the pol political aspect. Again, those who want to be talking about, oh, I can't support it because of this and look at the website. I care about three words, Black lives matter for too long black lives have not mattered in this world it's about time for black lives to matter and that is what i care about i don't care about any politics behind the blm movement so what do you say to the english cricket team who stopped taking the knee after last year's west indian west indian tour or to, i said it i said it to the, yeah i said it then and i'll say it again and i said it to the chairman or the former chairman because he he resigned recently if you cannot signal to the world that you are supporting the fact that black lives matter by doing what all people all over the world have done and are doing by taking a knee i'm sorry i cannot support you i saw a swedish women's football team take the knee before a football game i saw a scottish on the 19 cricket team in their green and perhaps dark blue or black, I couldn't distinguish it on the picture, taking a knee before they played a cricket game. And you're going to tell me that the England cricket team can only take a knee when a black team is present in to, for them to play against? As soon as the black team disappears, you stop taking a knee? What that tells me that you didn't really want to, but you figured you had to because the black team was there. I can't support that. Michael, there's so much more that I can chat to you about the book, and I've got a number of big questions here, which, frankly, we unfortunately we won't get to today, um, because I also want to talk about cricket. We've got a bit more than 10 minutes left, so if you don't mind, 
Um, can we talk a little bit about cricket, please? And as a sort of an op opening general question, do you mind do you mind sharing with us how your relationship with the game may have changed over the years? Well, I'm not in love with the game as it is now, as I was as a young man and, and when I played the game, because the game has changed too much. And when I say the game, I'm not talking about the bat and the ball and the fielding. That's not the aspect I'm talking about. I'm just talking about everything surrounding the game of cricket, the way, the way it is managed, the way administrators deal with the game. I don't find that administrators care much about the game these days. They care about the amount of money they can make from the various forms of the game. And the more money that comes from a particular form, the more they care about that particular form of the game. And they keep on telling about test cricket being the ultimate and must preserve test cricket and all that sort of thing. But what do they do to actually preserve the game to show that they mean what they say? They do nothing. If you look at England, for instance, throughout the entire best, the best months of the year in England, the good summer months, June, July, there's no test cricket. They play all the shortest forms of the game, and test cricket is played in the spring and in the autumn. Don't tell me that you're trying to do your best for test cricket, and that is the way you treat it. They tell you about the success of this new program that they brought out, this new 100-ball thing. Michael Atherton is someone that I respect highly as a person and as a journalist. And we talk a lot. And I read an article that he read, which I had been voicing the same opinion for donkey's years about the ICC. He wrote that the ICC no longer, that's if they ever did, manage cricket. What ICC do is manage their tournaments. They have become a production company and make a lot of money from their tournaments. They don't really manage the game. The game has been drifting and just drifting along. And all they're interested in doing is having their World Cup tournaments with their 20 overs or 50 overs or whatever, and making tons of money from, from selling the rights to television companies. That's all they're interested in. So don't tell me that you're interested in the game and you have done nothing to try and preserve the game. So talking about all this money, we all know that there's the so-called big three in cricket who basically hog, I don't know, the vast bulk of this money. Um, and do you think that's really sort of stifling uh, the game? And, and just before I sort of hand over to you, um, I want to link that to your comments recently um, about uh, the Western arrogance, the, the English tour that was cancelled to Pakistan. And 15 years ago, a similar term that you used a first world hypocrisy, also involving Pakistan when the test at the Oval was forfeited. So money, big three, and this whole concept of Western arrogance. Well, let, let me start with the Pakistan test match first of all, Dian, because that, that one is further, further away. I don't remember using the term Western arrogance for that particular one. It was, I, it I was, think you, you wrote an article that was, I think, um, in, in it was in the Wisdom uh, magazine 15 years ago. It was first world hypocrisy was the term then, not Western oh, hypocrisy. Yes, yes, yes. Because what I said then, they accused Pakistan of tampering with the ball. And I said then, if you're going to accuse me of cheating, which tampering with the ball is cheating, if you're going to accuse me of cheating, you have got to have evidence you cannot just come up and say you're a cheat without having the evidence there was no evidence the ball was inspected many times after 
even at that same point on that day, they could not show. Here is the evidence of you tampering with, with the ball. And that is why I said it was hypocrisy because it was just somebody using their power because they could. But if you remember, I also supported the fact that Pakistan should have lost that test match. If you do not take the field, you are forfeiting the game. It was initially a forfeit, but then they tried to change it at a board meeting of the ICC. I was on the ICC cricket committee then, Dion, and that led to my departure. That led to my resignation because England brought the point about changing it because they were hoping that if they could get to change it from a forfeit to a draw, that Pakistan would then support them on a particular thing that they wanted support with. And I, along with the rest of the cricket committee, because it was brought there first, said, absolutely no way. You cannot walk off the field or not take the field. It ends up a draw. You have forfeited the test match. Although I was defending Pakistan and Inzamanul Haq for the principle, you, there are consequences to your actions. So if you have done that, you have lost the test match. So we said no. But then it went to the ICC level, the board level. And one comment that I heard coming back from the board level was, oh, that's just a cricket committee. We'll change it to a draw anyway. And that is when I resigned. I am a man, I believe in principle. Not that I have a halo over, over my head, Dion, but I believe in principle. And there's no way I was going to stick around under those circumstances. So that's the Pakistan situation. Then no, you, but I, I tell you about, again, about hypocrisy. If you remember the Ashes tour of 2005, I don't remember what year it was, when they had those explosions in London on the bus, people got killed. 2005, 7-7. Seven, seven. Thank you very much. We were playing a test match up at Leeds when the explosions took place. The next test match was going to be in London where the explosions had taken place. And I voiced my opinion then. I said, is the Ashes now going to be stopped? Are Australia now going to go home because of the explosions in London? Not a word of it. Not a thing. When similar situations happen in other countries, in Pakistan now, in India, people go home immediately. New Zealand just went home from Pakistan without even an explosion. They just, got, they just got word that there might be a problem. They went home. Again, that's the hypocrisy that in the world in which we live. Go home under all circumstances or stay under all circumstances because you cannot act because you think you're a big power and you are whoever, that you're going to treat people the way that you want to treat them. That's another part of the hypocrisy. Moving forward now to Pakistan and England. Pakistan went to England last year. Again, I remind everyone, there was nothing called a vaccine at that point. England was leading the world in COVID deaths during, the 20, during 2020, June, July, August, that time of the year. Pakistan said, it's okay. We are coming. We're going to honor our commitment. We're going to come and bail you out. England would have lost over 200 million pounds if Pakistan and the West Indies had not gone to England in 2020. 200 million pounds. Both teams went under their commitment, bailed out England. England now have an opportunity 
to go to Pakistan for four days, Ian. Four days, Ian, sorry. They go to Europe on holidays for longer than that. Four days. And they decide, oh, we don't have to go. We are not going with some flimsy excuse. And then they do not come out and make answer questions that people would like to ask of them. They put out a flimsy statement. Come on. How can people accept that sort of behavior? That is arrogance. But we have the big three that you mentioned. We have them, all them behaving similarly. India went home without playing the last test match against England recently. Gave an excuse about people in their camp having COVID and it was stressful for them, that sort of thing. So they went home. England in South Africa went back home before that series ended because they say somebody returned a positive test. Then later on, they recognized it was a false positive. Australia then decided they're not going to South Africa. So those three big teams behave however they feel they want to because according to them or what it seems like, they are the big three. They control cricket. They do as they like. England, though, would not have done what they did to Pakistan to India. So I don't want people to think that this is only a color thing because India are rich and powerful. England would not have done what they did to Pakistan to them. So we need to make sure that the playing field is level. We can't have this arrogance and this hypocrisy continuing throughout the world. Mike, it's nearly time to close off. And I want to ask you one more question about the book because obviously your book is called uh, <clears throat> Why We Kneel Why and we How We Arise. But if you if you just look at it from a distance, it sort of reduces to one word, and that word rise. is rise, given the size and the font uh, on the front cover. Um, and my question to you is this: Is are you optimistic that uh, that you will see the rising in your lifetime, or do you think it will be you know for your for your grandson who's six today? Do you think uh, that he will live in a in a world that is different and and perhaps a better world? Well, this year he's seven. Last year he was six, and I okay. put, and the the rise was done in huge letters, Dion, because I am optimistic. The gentleman who wrote the book with me, Ed Hawkins, he is optimistic. The publishers are optimistic. And it was a collaboration of all of us to design the cover this way. Because we believe that people will come on board, people will see the light, and people will take action. I've already seen it. I've experienced it. And we believe that things will change. I don't believe I'll see total equality in my lifetime. I'm six or seven years old. I don't know how much longer I have to live. And something that has been going on for centuries doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a decade or even sometimes two decades. But I see the evidence. I see corporations. The only mere fact that I'm talking on this Creed of Fireside chat shows you that people are willing to open their eyes. People are willing to listen. People are willing to change their thought processes. Because if you grow up under certain circumstances and you're only taught one thing, that's what you're going to believe. I'll tell you a quick story about a gentleman in England, a white race horse trainer in England that I've known for donkey's years. And I know the gentleman. We have a good relationship. So I know he's not racist. But he called me one day and he said to me, Mikey, I want to come and see you. And I said, absolutely. And he drove over to the house. We knocked on the door, came inside, sat down. In my living room, I said to me, first of all, I want to apologize to you. And I'm there thinking, apologize to me, what for? I'm not going to call his name. So, says Fred. I said, Fred, what are you apologizing about? I said, well, let me tell you, you know I'm a big football fan. 
I have been going to football and I have been cursing these footballers taking the knee and saying it's about time it stops. This is ridiculous now. How long are they going to take the knee for? He said, after reading your book, I now understand. I totally understand and I believe they should continue taking the knee until they get the justice that they are seeking, they get the equality that they are seeking. I said, Fred, that is why I wrote this book. I'm hoping I can change a lot more people like you and when I say change, not change from being a racist, but just open people's eyes who have just been coasting through life, not recognizing anything that's, that is wrong because their life has been good and they just don't see anything else. They go through pretty much blinkered. They're not bad people, Dian. I know that. I've known him for years. He's not a bad person. But he was going through life blinkered. And we need to drop those blinkers so that people can see and people can recognize and people can accept that we are all one have different color skin but that's about it we are all one okay i think that's a great place to leave it i'm going to ask you one final question and that is where does this all leave uh, michael holding is it time for a gown and pipe and slippers and you know watching the caribbean sunset you know on your rocking chair uh, or are you going for a career in politics are we soon going to see you know president michael holding of jamaica there's absolutely no way I'll get involved in politics. I am not one that's a big fan of politicians. A lot of them don't behave the way I would like to see them behave. But they are the policy makers. So you have, you have to try and impress upon them that things need to change and they need to do certain things. But I couldn't go, in, go into politics. That's just not my scenario. And as for what I'm going to do in the future, yeah, I have no idea. I am just taking things easy for the time being. I just pretty much retired. I'm not even retired two months properly yet. So I'm just relaxing, see how things develop. Looking forward to Christmas with the family. I'm inviting my, my family down because a couple of my daughters still live in the US. I'm going to invite them down to Cayman, have Christmas together, and then see how things develop next year. Thank you very much, Mikey. Enjoy Christmas. It was great chatting to you as always. I hope we can reconnect in person again at some point in time. And on behalf of Credo and all our clients and friendly parties watching this today, uh, all the best for a happy uh, and uh, and a healthy retirement. Thank you. Thank you very much, Diana. And again, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. And uh, all that uh, it leaves for me as well is to thank uh, the people in the audience today. We do appreciate your time. Uh, and until next time, goodbye. And that wraps up this edition of the Credo Fireside Chat. A special thank you to Michael Holding, aka Whispering Death, for sharing his thoughts with us today. We welcome interesting and challenging ideas, especially if they come from you. If you have a topic in mind or someone you would love to see on the show, do let us know. For more information or to invest with Credo, please contact us at www.credogroup.com. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.